Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby. Alright, and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, good girls want him bad, bad girls want him worse, it's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir? Um, I'm alright, yeah, um, that film, it sounds like it's going to be like a reverse, a gender swapped Greece, but right. as far as I'm aware that's not a thing that exists yet, so no. um, uh, I'm going to say Greece 2. <laughs> no, not quite. But you were kind of close with the Grease vibe. It's Crybaby. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that is definitely in the right genre, like a uh, musical about greasers starring yeah. young heartthrobs who grow up to be disappointing adults. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of disappointment, uh, <laughs> this segue is not going to help. But yeah, last week we had a, uh, an episode all about politics because... You know, we were recording it in the uh, the run up to the uh, U.S. presidential election, uh, and I correctly said that you know um, I couldn't see it going any other way but for Hillary. But yeah, <laughs> here we stand uh, on the brink of watching uh, the U.S. and possibly the world uh, slip backwards into the the kind of the murky gloom of fascism. Yeah, I mean, light light start to the show, I guess. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean when the best kind of uh the silver lining of it is to just say oh well the president elect is too stupid and incompetent to get anything done that's uh that's probably not the kind of best starting point mm. um, so we'll have to see how it goes but yeah it was uh tuesday night was uh very depressing like i think i did i didn't stay up for the whole thing it got to like midnight and i thought this is not looking good like they hadn't declared pennsylvania which was said was going to seemed like it was going to be a very bad sign because that was one of the ones hillary needed to win to to win the president to win the electoral college which i think everyone could agree is a stupid system that probably should not still be used considering it was deliberately designed as an anti-democratic measure of retaining states rights and power for slave owning states but anyway the uh, fact that these states hadn't been called made me think, yeah, this is probably not going to go well. So I went to sleep and then I woke up at 2.30 in the morning, checked my phone and then like, yeah, the news was was what it was. So, yeah, it's been a very weird week. Mm, yeah. And I mean, it was the kind of thing that even people who live on this side of the Atlantic who who voted for Brexit, which is, you know, a similar act of polit- political kind of Harry carry. Um, even th- these people were like, Jesus, Trump, seriously? <laughs> like, you know, we've, we've ele- well, you've, you've kind of elected what appears to be uh, an internet troll to be your president. Mm, yeah. Which is not, not a great look. But yeah. uh, like I said, I, I was, I was about as wrong about that as I was about Deadpool's chances of success. <laughs> um, and uh, I feel way worse about Trump, if that's any consolation. Yeah, I mean, you are proving to be something of a kind of like a bizarro Nate Silver in that whatever <laughs> you predict, the opposite will happen. So I think people need to start taking bets just saying the opposite of what you think is going to gonna, gonna uh, go right or wrong. So uh, if you have any Oscar predictions and people want to get their uh, multipliers in, mm, I think that's probably squad. the time. <laughs> yeah. Suicide, Harley Quinn, best actress, uh, what's her name? Margot Robbie. I think that's a... Uh, a performance of rare subtlety and grace. Um, <laughs> uh, she's positively streep-like when she uh, bends over in those hot pants. Um, Real empowering. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we don't really have a lot to talk about outside of the awfulness of the election in the news, so we're just going to plough on with this week's episode, which uh, we thought would be a bit of fun to lighten the mood. Uh, my nephew, who uh I kind of saw last weekend, he's uh, at sixth form now. They grow up so quick, Ed, they really do. Uh, and he's studying film studies. Uh, and I kind of, when he told me that, I was kind of just, I was really like, oh, he's just, you know, trying to follow in the footsteps of your Uncle Matt, you know? Like, and I, you know, I kind of feel that I'm his kind of cultural guardian. Like, you know, uh, if you grow up in provincial Suffolk, there's not really a great deal of stuff going on. So, like, I feel like, I, you know, I give him kind of comic books and, you know, like, movies and, 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 like, albums and stuff, and he's into it. And I was like, oh, I'm so, I'm kind of almost honoured that you've picked 
film studies to, to be a bit like me. He's like, no, nah, it just looks like a DOS. So I was like, oh, okay, that's fair. But what that inspired me to think was when he was telling me about his first few weeks of the course and he was saying, you know, what kind of films he's watching. And, and the first thing he said is we watch Vertigo because obviously as regular listeners of the show will know, um, that is now the best movie of all time as it now tops the sight and sound um, list of uh, 100, 100 great films that comes out every 10 years. Um, he's watched that. Uh, and then he said the next one he watched was The Descent. The uh, Neil Marshall, is it Neil Marshall? Is, yes. Isn't it? Uh, Neil Marshall kind of uh, underground cave-dwelling horror film, which I was kind of less pleased about because I'm not really a big fan of that film. But then I just thought, well, hang on, what would I choose to kind of introduce uh, a kind of fertile young mind to the world of film studies? And then we had the idea of doing what we're calling the uh, Shot Reverse Shot Film Studies 101. Um, and what's that going to entail, Ed? Well, we have kind of thought about different ways of introducing impressionable young minds or even just minds who are interested in learning about different eras of cinema uh you know suggesting either essentials is kind of one way of saying it or perhaps more accurate would be gateway movies so Mm -hmm. for example you know if you wanted to if you're new to kind of studying film and you want to get a sense of what silent cinema was all about then you know we kind of think okay what would be a good film to kind of first understand silent cinema it's not something that's too heavy or inaccessible or strange you know what would be a kind of a good one and, and that's kind of the approach we've taken to these these kind of very broad different eras we've gone for um beginning with kind of early cinema which is the kind of silent age through to the 1930s classical slash romantic era which would be the 30s through to the 50s the various new waves that overtook cinema in the 60s and 80s and then kind of the the stuff from the early 90s through to now so these are all very broad terms this i I wouldn't say that this is a kind of an experts or intermediates kind of class it is more a case of saying these are movies that uh, we view as being hugely important certainly in my case hugely important to my development in my understanding of 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 cinema over the years uh or a kind of slight alternatives to the the more traditional choices in for for what are considered canonical movies Mm. and we're going to try to avoid some of the obvious pitfalls and some of the the more kind of uh tried and tested uh kind of approaches to teaching film studies um, and I'm also going to try and deliberately veer away from exactly what I studied, um, mm. which I've talked about this before, and I won't name names, but Sheffield Hallam thought they would be <laughs> you know, cool to teach uh, people film studies uh, by showing Tokyo Story twice, back-to-back, then showing L'Argent, the, uh, the, the Robert Bresson film, and then Batman, which was, yeah, it was, it was a scattershot approach, and it didn't particularly work for me, I don't think in terms of a formal film education, it wasn't until you got into kind of other modules that it became a bit more interesting. So I kind of relished the idea of, of, of kind of plotting out what we think is, you know, a cool way to learn about film studies, I guess, or kind of maybe investigate genres and eras that you've, that you've never kind of really spent time on. So should we get cracking with uh, the early stuff, Ed? Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're talking the early cinema silence up to what we're saying, 1930? Yeah, around like 1930, a few years after the jazz singer came out and you start to see everyone embracing sound. Mm, and yeah, so we're going to talk uh, about mainly silent films and by extension, probably not all going to be American, which will kind of probably shift later on as we move through these. Now, I have to say, this is the era... This is the category that we're going to talk about that I have the least expertise in. I am not, by any stretch of imagination, well-versed in early cinema. I have seen the classics, um, so this may well be educational to me as well. But what kind of things are we going to talk about and what are we looking for, what are we looking to kind of take from study in uh, early cinema? Well, the first film that came to my mind would be something like Sherlock Jr., which is Mm -hmm. the uh, kind of... I don't know if it's the masterpiece by Buster Keaton, but it's certainly one of them. A movie about a uh, a projectionist in a cinema who falls asleep uh, whilst projecting a movie and then finds himself in his sleep entering the movie that he's watching. It's a hugely innovative and 
funny. You know, that's the the important thing. A hugely innovative and very funny movie that I think puts uh, puts the lie to the notion that early cinema means primitive cinema. Because mm-hmm. I think that's a problem that creeps in that people think, oh, they didn't have sound, therefore this stuff must be old and creaky and not particularly good. And then to be fair, there are a lot of silent films about which that could be said because there's that's something you can say about a lot of sound movies as well movies that are made now there's a lot that aren't very good and don't show a particular particularly high levels of of craft whereas i think with something like with sherlock jr the sheer level of inventiveness inventiveness on display throughout shows that even in the earliest days of the medium there were people who were able to really push the boundaries in ways that really interesting but also that remain very very funny like a large part of what's great about that movie is that you get to see buster keaton play with the form with the notion of physical comedy with uh just editing tricks in a way that is really genuinely experimental and exhilarating Mm. so when i say what we're looking for we are looking for a way to bring early cinema to life Mm -hmm. we don't want we don't want these kids the youth uh, to think, oh, you're showing us like crusty old shit. Um, you know, why do we have to show you this? Um, and we don't want. Um, I mean, and we've got to remember as well that the the huge, the overwhelming majority of films from this period don't exist anymore. Yeah. So the ones that do um, have, you know, stuck around by by luck or by virtue, essentially. Um, and we need to uh, kind of sift through uh, what they're going to be seeing. So what we what we're going to look to avoid. Uh, I think something like, as great a film as it is, I think Metropolis would probably be one that isn't the best gateway in. Because as as huge and uh, impressive that is as a work of science fiction and, and kind of a, on a huge scale, it's also very daunting and strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that could be quite alienating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of shorts, isn't there? There's a lot of kind of comedy shorts that would be easily accessible. Chaplin did a lot of shorts. But if you're going to throw Sherlock Jr. in there, I'm going to kind of veer a little bit away. And Metropolis is quite long, isn't it? It's quite uh, kind of a schlep to get through, I feel. Um, But I feel like my gateway silent film for someone who has not spent a great deal of time in the silent era would be something like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which Mm. is... Uh, relatively short it's about 70 70 odd minutes i think but also it's creepy as fuck and um it will kind of certainly appeal visually to anyone who's kind of got an eye for those things and you can kind of feel the echoes of it even still today like the compositions and the the uh, expressionistic style is you know from an artistic standpoint very interesting to watch and easy to study uh, I feel like that's a very accessible and kind of easy film to start off with. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Batman earlier. If you look at Dr. Caligari and then at Tim Burton's Batman movies, the line between those two couldn't be more starkly drawn uh, mm-hmm. and kind of crooked and, uh, you know, with great lighting. You know, I think that, and like you say, it also, um, there's two kind of very primal responses that are hard to fake and one is one being laughter and one being fear and i think Mm -hmm. between those ones that again is a lesson that just because these movies were made almost or more than a hundred years ago doesn't mean that they don't have still have retained the power to be uh to be accessible and enjoyable to an audience you know it's not just you, you you can watch um Sherlock Jr. or The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari as homework and to kind of study them and to kind of piece pull them apart, but they are also actually hugely enjoyable films to watch. Mm, yeah, and I, I kind of had written down in my notes The General as my Buster Keaton, which yeah. is, uh, is his most famous film, I guess, isn't it? Uh, I, I suppose Steamboat Bill might have the, you know, the most iconic moment of the house falling on him. Is that Steamboat Bill Jr.? Is that the one? That's the right one, yeah. Yeah, um, but the general is is his kind of. Would you say it's like his overall his kind of most complete film? I guess it's. I think it's mo- his most ambitious and his most and the one that maybe pushes past the strains of what you would consider 
silent film comedy because obviously there are some very funny moments in it and there's kind of some good gags but it's mainly like a big action adventure movie mm, yeah and i think that it's, it's probably the one that points to his the scope and scale of his ambition in that early point of his career before he uh signed for mgm and kind of lost a lot of his i think it was mgm and lost a lot of his the, the creative freedom that he had had prior to that um, mm. So, yeah, so that one's certainly one of his more complete and fully realised visions. So we've talked about, um, whilst we were planning this episode, to try and kind of pick three films from each of the eras to kind of regard as essential um, without being kind of too heavy on how essential they are. Um, And I think those two are a good starting point. But have we got like an idea of perhaps what is the the pinnacle of the silent film? Because I do. I, I think that... Um, if you're talking about a film that feels like it's going to make the transition across to talking, but also feeling like it's the end of that era, is something like City Lights. Yeah. Um, which is a Chaplin film, which is uh, both incredibly funny, um, incredibly artistically uh, bold and, and, and interesting, um, but also has uh, a huge amount of emotion in it that, you know, is... I think that like it's easy to be funny with silent film and slapstick is a thing, but to kind of like ring the pathos, um, I think is much harder. And that is a film that manages to do both. Yeah, and and I think it's also a good example of uh, Chaplin's sentimentality, which you know, sentiment and the idea of being able to wring genuine kind of tears from an audience is something that's a huge part of cinema and you can draw a line from him to someone like Steven Spielberg who does the same sort of thing. And that one is his most kind of unabashed. You can you can get worked up and you can get you can have a huge emotional response to something like Modern Times or The Great Dictator and things like that. But I feel like City Lights and maybe the kid are probably the two that his most unforced emotionally they are Mm. just deeply moving movies regardless of uh, without kind of any real high concept pitch to them it is just a love story between a man and a blind woman Mm -hmm. Uh, and and he does so much with that simple content concept whilst also uh, making the audience laugh at him being getting the crap beaten out of him in a boxing (laughs) ring for example yeah, yeah. So you happy with those three for early cinema, silent era stuff? I think so. I think, yeah, you, you there, you have the three kind of core emotions that drive a lot of early cinema all kind of represented. And you also get introduced to some of the kind of the big names uh, of that era as well. So there's plenty of room for further study if people want to investigate more Keaton or, or Chaplin. Mm. And I think that, like, I'm an interesting case study for this is because, um, like I say, I'm not hugely versed in early cinema, but, like, you know, I've seen all three of those films and the stuff that I've liked I've gone off and, and watched a bit more of. And, you know, you don't have to spend time learning about anything, but it's good to have a little grounding in stuff. And whether you take it any further or not, it's completely down to you. But, like, it's good to see those things um, and, you know, have it in the bank so you've seen it. Um, but, you know... Don't linger. If, you don't, if you're not enjoying it, you know, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, okay, our next section uh, is what I've dubbed classical slash romantic cinema, which is a kind of a term borrowed from Mark Cousins in uh, The Story of Film, which uh, just as a kind of a broad recommendation, that's something that I think a lot of people should check out, both the book version and the the uh, television series he made of it a few years ago, mm. which uh, are kind of give a good grounding and a very broad spectrum of cinema uh but th- that would basically be the golden age of hollywood but also the burgeoning uh film industries worldwide that started to emerge as real kind of powers during that 20 year period mm, yeah and if we're going to start with you know what we should perhaps try and avoid um i'm going to just say that we are not going to recommend people use Citizen Kane as a uh, uh, a gateway movie because I actually think that as a gateway movie, despite the fact that it is clearly a masterpiece and clearly kind of endlessly studyable and endlessly interesting and, and you know, it's got it's so rich and, and there's, you know, depth, you could study that 
like on its own for years. It's not a good gateway movie for, for people who are looking to get into it. That's something you have to come to by yourself, I think. That's how I feel about it anyway. Uh, yeah, I think I would agree. I feel that for a lot of people, a lot of people don't particularly cotton to Citizen Kane when they first watch it, or they come to it with the wrong attitude, which is people tell it it's the greatest film. They tell them that it's the greatest film of all time, and so they desire, they have a desire to be impressed by it. Mm-hmm which is never really the best attitude to take. And also I think um, it's the sort of film where it innovated so much stylistically and narratively that have has since been kind of co-opted and, and built upon by other filmmakers that you kind of need to go into it knowing a little bit of the grounding of like, okay, this is what cinema was like before Citizen Kane. This is how it changed the game completely. Whereas if you just come to it and people say, oh yeah, it's one of the greatest films of all time without a kind of a particularly strong grounding, then that uh, is not really conducive to a, a, a proper understanding of the movie. Mm, absolutely. We talk about classic era of Hollywood. Is it important to pick films that are perhaps, uh, that deal with the whole code issue, what pre-code and, and, and kind of post the Hayes code we're talking about? Yeah, I think that that's something to to understand to for, for to point out to people that prior to the 1930s things were a lot looser. You could get something like um uh Babyface I think it was called, like these these movies where uh, with Barbara Stanwyck where movies that could be not sexually explicit in the way that perhaps we would think of the of sexually explicit, but which could acknowledge the fact that sex was a thing that existed, that people did drugs and that all of these things occurred. Uh, and then at a certain point around after 1934, that disappeared uh, because they imposed the production code. So mm-hmm. something like uh, the gold diggers of 1933 would be a good example of that, where you show someone this really entertaining and funny musical and also just kind of a great example of a backstage musical, which if you kind of dig into early Hollywood you'll watch hundreds of because that's what so many of musicals back then tended to use as their setting uh, and you can look at that and say okay this there was a, a more libertine approach to subject matter uh, pre-code uh, that you know you wouldn't really see just a few years later mm. and we're talking about um, kind of around that time pre-code to like early 30s right up to probably mid-50s, aren't we, where the traditional Hollywood system um, of, you know, a kind of, of of the Hollywood studios owning everything. They owned the stars, they owned the, the crew, they owned the lots, they owned the, the the means of exhibition. They owned, it was a Berkeley integrated system. They owned the theatres, they owned the, the production, they owned the actors. And then there was the Paramount Decree, which I think was in 1957, I'm going to say, which was the Monopoly's uh, commission stepped in and said, uh, this is suspect, guys. Uh, this kind of anti-competition and, and kind of uh, not good. So you need to break this up. And then we saw what is essentially modern cinema born after that point. So when we say classical era Hollywood, we, we really do mean it. There, this mm. this this is a way. This was a, a type of filmmaking and a style of filmmaking and a mode of filmmaking that never returned. Yeah, exactly. A, a one where the where expression was limited to a great sense was censored in what you could say and what you could show and what your characters could do. So filmmakers had to be a little more inventive and try and do things subtextually which they wouldn't have to do in a few years time but also a place where literally hundreds if not thousands of movies were being cranked out in a year Mm -hmm. so you had this huge overwhelming deluge of movies being made uh, of often of incredibly high quality uh, being made in this system that was incredibly controlled but also weirdly liberating for those who are able to maneuver and manipulate around it Mm. and we've talked before uh on this show about um kind of like those elder statesman filmmakers having to be 
able to master both a house style of whoever employed them, but also be able to be very versatile and kind of move across like many, many genres. And I think for the first pick, I'd like to perhaps go with something that is that reflects that, something from someone like Howard Hawks, maybe? Mm, yeah. Uh, what do you think best represents uh, his work? Uh, I think you'd probably have to go for something like Red River. Yeah. The John Wayne and Montgomery, Montgomery Clift Western, both because if you want to talk about what exactly a Hawksian movie is, which is a movie about camaraderie about combativeness between people who have very strongly held beliefs who are end up in conflict uh, but also if you want to understand why exactly the western was one of the dominant genres for a huge chunk of the history of hollywood then red river is probably one of the best examples to look at because it's just an amazing funny exciting uh, and genuinely kind of compelling example of the of the genre mm. and it's it's going to be important later on because we could have broken this down by genre right talking about this but we'd be here for fucking ever um so talking about genre in the general context of film studies uh generally tends to be done through the western and mm. whilst that seems like quite a hackneyed way to teach it, it is like absolutely perfect way to teach it about genre so picking red river sets us up nicely for some later choices when we get to talk about um more modern films but yeah red river is a great shout um i'm gonna pick uh well i'm gonna i'm gonna suggest this is by no means uh trump's america <laughs> we're gonna get to talk about it <laughs> um i'm gonna pick something uh which perhaps existed outside that studio system but sure. also um also dealt with you know it, it, it was well placed within a genre that was very popular around the time something like detour uh, yeah. the the old film noir which uh, again introduces concepts of film noir which you can you know study endlessly about uh, um kind of lighting composition editing um and issues of genre talking about iconography and uh, kind of signifiers of certain things that that are kind of uh, popular within tropes tropes of uh, in in certain films and genres um, it's very much got that. But the reason I wanted to suggest Detour is that it was made outside the studio system. It was an independent film, essentially, and they didn't have the money to do a lot of those things. And I was really cautious about um, being a slave to representation in this in this uh, this episode. I didn't want to be uh, someone who said, oh, we've got to pick a Spanish film, we've got to pick a documentary, we've got to pick a British film, We've got because that's going to be impossible, because oh, we're going to be picking 16 films, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no, 12 films, is that right? Yeah, 12. Yeah, we had a real trouble with the maths of this before this episode started. Um, but 12 films, and it's impossible. It's an impossible task. But to have something that existed around then is an interesting history point about how an independent film was made back then, but also very much uh, falls into the uh, the noir uh, genre, plus also um, is a low-budget film. I think that would be a, a perfect... Perfect shout. Plus as well, in terms of accessibility and in terms of like fertile young minds and their kind of ADHD lifestyle that they live now, uh, it's like 15 minutes long. (laughs) It's so short. I think they literally could only afford like 70 minutes worth of film. So that's how long it is. I think that's a really accessible, really fun, really good film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say for this this period, uh, what's interesting about the kind of the 30s and 50s, even though countries all over the world had film industries from the earliest days of cinema the 30s and 50s is when they start to become more internationally renowned Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of them start to really kind of come into their own so i would point to maybe something like the work of yasujiro ozu and something like late spring Mm -hmm. so not tokyo story which is an amazing movie and is often pointed to as as his masterpiece but something like late spring which is uh i i think a really lovely and accessible movie that you can point to as an example of how a intimate low low stakes is perhaps not the the right words but certainly a a a kind of a unassuming drama can be made using very limited tools essentially actors a largely static camera and a great script and how that can produce something that's kind of deeply felt and incredibly moving 
mm. and because Japanese cinema from is one of the those one of the more fertile really in terms of the various different genres that it encompassed at that period of time but also one that is so often um caricatured as being just about samurai or just anime and things like that when there's so much more to it uh, ozu is a great kind of counterpoint to that where you can point to it and say they they the japanese were experts at these incredibly finely drawn character studies as well mm. Yeah, yeah, and then there's there's so much you can jump off at there. If you if you do get into something like that, then you know I had on my list something like Ikaru, uh, mm. which is again it's you know a Japanese film that is not about samurai, even though there are tons of great old Japanese films about samurai. I mean, uh, we could have picked anything like Kur- Kurosawa's classic work um, that would have been a real great representation of, of of this era. But I feel pretty pretty good with those. I think that's a pretty diverse mix, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, yeah, like you say, if even if you just wanted to delve into the movies that Ozu made, and he made a ton in what was really, truthfully, I think a relatively short career, because I think he died fairly young compared to someone like Kurosawa, uh, you can get an amazing education in how to, in a different kind of cinematic storytelling. Mm. Uh, and whereas our first two choices are really good examples of what we could, would consider the kind of the classic style of, of those particular very f- uh, popular genres that really defined the 40s and 50s for a long time. Mm. It's just given me an idea for a band name as well, Ozu D2. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's quite catchy. I don't know what kind of music it would be. <laughs> uh, very minimalist, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, Japanese electronica. Um, should we say what's the next category Ed we, we, we seem to be hurtling through it's quite hard to condense isn't it the time periods because there was so much going on but broadly speaking we can kind of pack it into big chunks but this one is going to be the, the hardest one for me I think yeah I mean these are all paralyzing choices earlier when when we decided we were going to do this and then you get down to the business of filling a blank page with choices um, mm. the next one is broadly termed new waves which refers to the outcropping the outbreak of um these different uh, cinematic movements that happened all over the world and starting in the kind of the late 50s and moving through to the 70s so you see things like the french new wave new german cinema the kind of uh czech new wave which was kind of huge hugely uh, innovative but relatively short-lived due to the fact that it took place in a rep- in a repressive country also in Britain, Japan had a big, again, Japan had a big kind of new wave movement. Uh, it's just this this amazing period of inventiveness in cinema. Um, and the French new wave tends to get the most attention. Uh, and then obviously, you know, the American new wave in the 60s and 70s is much discussed on this program. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of this huge uh, outburst of creativity worldwide, which... Uh, you know, the the more you dig into it, the more amazing stuff there is. Mm. And uh, what was your first thought when when sitting down to write this? Because this this was really difficult. Well, the first thing I thought was I wouldn't want them to talk about breathless. Mm, yeah, that is that is uh, what's the thing in QI when they mention it, <laughs> and then the alarm goes off behind. Oh, um, obvious answer. Yeah, yeah. Talking about that breathless. I mean, it is. A stunning piece of work and it is fairly essential that you watch that but I didn't see it until about five years ago I think for the first time because I'd generally just avoided it like the plague um, <laughs> because I didn't want to like you said about Citizen Kane you come at it with the wrong attitude you know what I mean you, you come at it thinking well I've got to appreciate this or you know there, there's elements of it that that you know if I and you then you'll feel kind of stupid if you don't go with it do you know what I mean and yeah. whilst I've kind of, as I've got older, I've kind of got a bit more mature about things. And, you know, if there's a film that I've seen that's purportedly a classic, then, you know, I can step back from it and think, well, I understand why people like that. But, you know, it's not my cup of tea. So avoiding Breathless or the French title, Breathless, um, uh, what could we kind of slip in in its stead? Well, my, my choice for one that I think people should watch instead whilst being of the same milieu... Uh, I think it came out the year before, would be Chloe from 5 to 7 by Agnes Varda, mm-hmm. which has a lot of the same hallmarks of Breathless. It's not quite as 
uh, obviously daring and you know like obviously breathless has a lot of kind of bold editing choices that break a lot of the key understandings of what the grammar of cinema is meant to be but it does a lot of things with kind of leading you to think it's one kind of movie and then breaking the form every so often like it'll have like it presents itself very naturalistically but then it will also have kind of a little dance sequence in it it's also a uh, aggressively uh, feminist movie in a way not in the sense that it's kind of hectoring but in the sense that it is fully committed to the idea of detailing the inner life of this young woman during this two-hour period in her life in which she contemplates the possibility that she may have a kind of a fatal disease and i feel like cinema in general is so male dominated and the french new wave the discussion of it is so male dominated that agnes varda despite being one of the great filmmakers of that era and really of all time someone who has continued to do great work over the course of a 50 years career certainly in my case she was someone that i had to eventually get to after watching a lot of films by like Truffaut and uh renee and things like that so uh, i feel like people should discover varda earlier just because she is a, a vital voice remains so and her early works can stack alongside the more celebrated and more renowned stuff that Truffaut and, and uh, Goddard were putting out. Mm, yeah, great shout. I would have probably thrown something like uh, Vanderpart in there. Um, mm. uh, 400 Blows is pretty obvious. Um, yeah. But, but, yeah, that's something that I think you should probably build to. I think uh, I'm going to kind of throw something from the new Hollywood era in there. Like you said, we, we do we do like to mention it. We all want to mention it from time to time. I actually think one of the best films to show, to talk about and to look at, to kind of get a handle on this era, plus also mark a, a very definite shift from all the other films we've talked about so far is Meme Streets. Mm. Um, because, you know, that is a film that fundamentally changed the way that films looked and sounded. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, certainly if you look at popular cinema of the last 20 years, post-Tarantino, popular cinema, which has really embrace the idea of the curated soundtrack and the idea of using well-established pop hits to ironic effect then you can see the seeds of that very clearly in mean streets which revolutionized the use of popular music uh for dramatic purposes Mm -hmm. and also is um you know, it highlights a lot of the preoccupations of 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 the filmmakers of that era i mean this was 70 Two, I think Mean Streets was, or was it a little earlier? 73, I think. So, okay, a little later, but um, yeah, so we're kind of five or six years into what we generally accept as the, the easy word is Raging Bull era, but it's, you know, a director still working under the compromise of a budget and perhaps not as much control as uh, he would like, or, you know, sorry, having to work outside of having control. But also in terms of like being a, almost a mission statement of what of what New Hollywood was trying to achieve, um, perhaps without the political edge, but definitely in terms of, in terms of like being a more personal films, being kind of uh, more grounded uh, in reality, but also um, you know telling kind of uh, kind of fringe interest stories, I guess. Yeah, and also as a great example of the kind of the cinema of synthesis, I guess the idea of someone taking their street level experience of growing up in new york and kind of uh, and having first-hand experience of the kind of street criminals that he's documenting but applying a encyclopedic knowledge of classical hollywood techniques so while the film is kind of rough and ready and has a street eye view it also has kind of beautifully orchestrated zooms or kind of camera moves when they want to introduce robert de niro's character and things like that and you know that was an approach that scorsese refined and refined over the course of his career but that is a a kind of a revolutionary moment in american cinema in saying that you don't need you don't have to be just these two things like you don't have to be these two things separately you don't have to be just grim and gritty and realistic or have kind of uh kind of genuine kind of aesthetic beauty you can do both things simultaneously and they can enhance each other mm. 
Um, we've got one more film to pick from this era, but it's it, it covers the biggest expanse of time from about 1957-ish to 1990, or 1989, <laughs> which is the arbitrary deadline we've given ourselves. What are we looking for from our third film? And what are we looking to kind of teach the youth of today uh, or anyone who might be interested with this last pick? Well, the one I'm going for, I'm going for the movie uh, Black Girl, which is a which is a movie from Senegal, which is directed by Osmane Sembeni, I want to say. Uh, I've never heard his name said out loud, so I apologise if I mispronounced it. But it's one of the first films uh, to come out of Africa to get widespread international acclaim. Uh, and I think that's an important thing because African cinema is something that is, generally speaking, not talked about a lot when people talk about cinema in general and international cinema it tends to be more or less ignored except for when you get things like i don't know sotsi that come out and get a lot of attention uh it tends to not be talked about that much despite the fact that there are it's kind of a, a rich uh, there's a rich cultural history to it uh but also that one i think it's a very very enjoyable movie the story of a I say enjoyable. It's, it's it's in places very bleak, but the story of a young uh, black girl who comes from Senegal to France to work for a free married couple, uh, ostensibly as a as a nanny, but over the course of her stay there, realizing that uh, they just want her as a general servant, and it's I think it's it's great in that it's offering a view of of colonialism and race in a way that's very kind of potent and very easy to understand. Uh, and these are things that people should kind of get to grip with, get to grips with early, but also it's such a wonderful and understandable way of using cinema as metaphor. And I feel like as great as it is to teach people about craft and about the different styles of filmmaking, it's important to say to pe- to establish early on for people that films are not just their story they are they can have kind of these great deeper meanings and and black girl is one of the best examples of that that i can kind of think of off the top of my head Mm. i had down um which is you know equally as an interesting uh choice i had down akira i had akira Um, down actually as well oh interesting why 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 do you think we both went for that it's a film i i haven't actually seen um, since I was about maybe 13 or 14 and, and kind of uh, caught it uh, kind of late, really late at night on TV and was just like totally entranced by that film and just totally kind of also like freaked out and kind of there's some kind of pretty far out stuff in there. Um, but the reason that I put it down is as a, you know, 14, 15-year-old boy who had, you know, seen some good films but kind of like didn't really know he was interested in them that was like, oh shit, I want to watch more of this. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was that I was looking at the list of films I'd drawn up and I realised I hadn't included any animated movies, despite the fact that I love animated movies, the the kind of the first kind of movie that I fell in love with uh, as a child, you know, watching lots of Disney movies. And then I thought, well, maybe that's just because animation is so ingrained that you don't really need to include examples of it. You can kind of assume that people have watched animated movies, but that how ingrained they are is also kind of a trap that people can fall into of thinking cartoons are only for kids or they can only do a certain kind of thing, whereas Akira was one of the first ones I can remember watching that really destroyed my presumptions about what animated movies could be. Uh, and it's also anime is such a huge and broad church you know it's such a a a genre that encompasses so many different kinds of movies that uh, and akira is such a great you know if we're talking about gateways akira is such a great gateway into an entire huge subgenre of of movie making Mm, yeah um so we've got ourselves a bit of an impasse there which one are we going to choose um I say we put both in. <laughs> there we go. We've uh, we've thrown caution to the wind and included both. And I'm totally happy with that. Um, uh, I think uh, those would both be great films to kind of uh, introduce a lot of like jumping off points, which is, you know, ultimately what film studies is about. You kind of, you don't, 
I certainly believe you don't teach film studies in like this is this, this is this, and this is this. It's like mm. here's some cool stuff. You know that's great, and you know go and do your own thing. I really only really started to study film, I guess, after I left university, and I was kind of just you know hanging around with people who all had wildly different tastes, and we'd you know have film nights where we'd each put a film on, we'd each pick one. And, you know, you start to kind of find films you'd never even knew existed or whatever. And it's not what they teach you in the books, Ed. Uh, like, it's good to go off-piste every now and then and not just think, oh, I'll watch, you know, Le Regle de Jou and, you know, I suddenly know everything. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah, anyway, what are we into now? We're into kind of, like, uh, our era now, aren't we? We're, into, we're kind of almost up to date. We're going to go from uh, what we're going to term the Sundance boom to, to right now. Which yeah. is, uh, we didn't come up with a better name for it other than the 90s and beyond. Yeah, although I like that beyond there. It's very mysterious. It is. It kind of, yeah. Although the problem is if we keep to it, then, you know, we're just making it harder for ourselves. We've got to be cut <laughs> off eventually because um, it would just be like all future films. Um, so I'm going to lay down a marker and say that if we're going to begin it around then, then the film you should really be talking about and the film you should be watching if you want to talk about perhaps the shift away from high-concept films in the 80s and blockbuster cinema to uh, looking again like we did with new cinema and more personal films, but in a slightly different way, like with the kind of the mini-majors boom and the the, the Sundance and the post-Sundance boom, then a great place to start would be Sexualizing Videotape. Mm, Yeah. Um, Because A, that film's amazing, um, and B, it is kind of very nearly completely out of step with, with everything, all the other films that people talk about from that, that era. Like, you talk about the era of, you know, high-concept action films, Simpson and Bruckheimer, Top Gun, um, and the idea that, you know, the personal film was, was dead or, you know, that they was it was, you know, marginalised. And then all of a sudden, you had a film that was very small, very unassuming, um, is creepy as fuck, <laughs> um, but got so much attention um, and kind of gave rise to, um, you know, what we look at now as kind of like a very, very healthy independent film scene. Um, and it's very easy to say, we're going we're gonna to show Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that something like uh, Sex, Lives, Videotapes, even though out of all of the, the choices that I've wrote, written down, it seems like the most obvious one. Um it's one that is very often forgotten. Yeah, I think it's one where the title is so ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Like, I've, if you look at uh, on IMDb for Sex, Lies and Videotape and go to, like, the Connections segment, the sheer number of, like, TV shows that have used variations on Sex, Lies and Videotapes as episode titles and things like that is incredible for a movie that, like you say, isn't as discussed as you would think considering it was something of a revelation at the time Mm -hmm. um you know it's 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 just kind of a phrase that people really know and that has has kind of uh crept into the public's consciousness in a real way even though i yeah like you say i don't feel like a lot of people watch the film that much these days compared to a lot of stuff that came out before and after it like Mm. it, it doesn't have the same cultural cachet as a reservoir dogs or a pulp fiction or even like a clerks it's it's very much one of the even though it directly led to those films in some ways it's not as kind of heavily discussed mm. and i think that i mean we we've toyed with the idea before about doing a you know steven soderbergh centric episode and the reason we did talk about doing that is you know because because his career is so varied and interesting and reflects the times in which he's making films um, that talking about him and with the starting off point of being sexualized and videotape would be really, really interesting. Mm, yeah. And also it's, I think it's a really important lesson to kind of teach young people who are interested in films that a good idea realized well can have a huge impact because obviously with sexualized and videotape, that script was written in what, two weeks? Mm-hmm he like wrote it in a incredibly short period of time the movie was made for very little starring people who were not like massive stars people who were kind of known but not massive marquee names um which ended up being nominated for oscars and winning the palm door and kind of setting 
Soderbergh on to a kind of a hugely impressive career for years and years and yeah and, and reshaping the way in which people thought about independent cinema for for more than a decade uh, and i think it's important to say to people that a movie can change the world you know it, it can be a big movie that like a star wars that completely reshapes a whole industry overnight or it can be a little one that just basically says to everyone hey if you've got an idea and if you can kind of get together a couple of hundred grand you can do whatever you want mm. and it's yeah i mean there's that's the template isn't it for for all of those things for you know Blair Witch Project, Clerks, any of those kind of DIY, even it wasn't DIY. I mean, it had it had some backing, but the, the idea that the the idea itself is you know trumps your budget, which is great. And it's it's not like like say about like Star Wars, which you know reinvents the wheel um, and kind of changes things going forward. It's just a general reminder that that uh, art is you know can come first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what what are we trying to get from? I mean, obviously, Six Thousand Videotape sets up uh, Hollywood, uh, and it sets up the kind of the the culture of filmmaking, I guess, around this time. Um, but you know, artistically, what are we looking to to teach here? I think you would want to kind of offer people a selection of movies that showed how cinema became global in a massive way in the 90s because the cold war had ended so you had a lot more kind of freedom of movement or freedom of communication of ideas and things like that but also a kind of slew of world cinema stars suddenly kind of broke through in a big way either because they came over to hollywood to make movies or because they stayed in their own countries and then those movies traveled the world and made them stars uh, in a way that happened kind of only fitfully prior to that or hadn't really happened since you know if you're looking like Fellini in the 60s Mm. Uh, and also they express kind of a huge amount of energy and excitement and optimism coming out of kind of burgeoning multiculturalism and an interconnected world Uh, and in in, if you wanted a kind of a movie that connected all of those threads together uh, I think you could look no further than something like Chunking Express Mm, yeah that was on my list which is one of the most vibrant movies about life really (laughs) life in the 90s love in the 90s or just kind of the new possibilities and the new fears and the new concerns that all kind of came out of this sudden burst of uh, of kind of societal change that started to kind of creep out uh, after the, the end of the cold war uh, and I think Wong Kar Wai, in his uh, in his approach to something like the gangster story, which was something that very kind of stayed and very uh, easily established, uh, very clearly established by that point, you can really see him uh, in in what was essentially kind of a tossed off lark because he was having such trouble making Ashes of Time, mm-hmm. creating a movie that was formally very daring, like visually unlike anything that was being made at the same time uh, and also able to really kind of uh, be deeply kind of exciting and moving and to, to, to like like also like Tarantino's work to take things like pop music and and demonstrate their possible potential as uh, like uh, the potential to take pop artifacts and make them deeply kind of moving uh, and recontextualizing them in a way that takes something like a mama's and papa's song and making it like hugely emotional mm. yeah yeah um i kind of feel like uh, this, uh, the fact that scream is jumping out at me mm. uh as to talk about but is that two nineties? because like it, it seems obvious to talk about you know films for the first time in the nineties, became very reflexive and, and self-referential and mm-hmm. uh, meta, I guess. And you don't really get much more meta than something like Scream. Um, is that too obvious? Do you think? Uh, I think it's important in the meta sense, but also if you're talking about like the triumph of irony, mm-hmm. like irony became a default storytelling. That kind of sense of detachment, the idea of writers and directors but also audiences being too clever for the established conventions 
something which continues a little bit to this day, but I think people kind of got bored of it and it became just kind of very kind of glib and something that absolutely anyone could do uh, and stopped being special. It kind of just became a trick that people could use to signify that they were smart. Mm. Um, But if you want to say point to the absolute best example of that uh, and as, as a trend that became somewhat all consuming for the kind of the latter half of the, of the decade of the nineties and, and into the two thousands, then scream is kind of an essential choice. Mm. What, what could we go for our last choice instead of scream? Um, I've, I kind of struggled with this one because there's a lot of kind of fairly obvious things. And when I say obvious, I mean, we talk about things like, um, Mulholland Drive or There Will Be Blood or No Country for Old Men, which are all, you know, fantastic films and fantastic illustrations of what, uh, cinema is around, you know, in, in the new century. Um, but I feel like they're not gateway movies. Hmm. Yeah. There's something you, you can build to and, and, and appreciate later on. Like, but what could be our last choice, Ed? I would say my one, both because it's a great work of art in its own right and it was a hugely important movie in the 90s, but also because I think it points a way to to much of what cinema much of uh of kind of how people experience cinema now would be something like hoop dreams mm-hmm. because it's a great documentary one of the greatest documentaries a kind of deeply human and interesting piece of work uh it's also represents kind of the bleeding edge of what would become the the kind of the boom of documentary filmmaking in the late 90s and the kind of 2000s through to now where documentaries have gone from things that occasionally break through um, and sometimes make money to things that are constant, you know, thanks to Netflix and things like that. There's a constant stream of new documentaries coming out. People are constantly talking about and watching documentaries in a way that didn't used to happen. And I feel like Hoop Dreams, because... It was a film that got a lot of critical attention, got a lot of uh, column inches based around the fact it didn't get nominated for a Best Documentary Oscar. And because it it's such a kind of a pinnacle of the form in some ways and, and probably inspired a lot of people that it's not just a kind of a great 90s movie, it's a really impactful one. Mm. If I were to be an arsehole... Sure. <laughs> and to, and to put my foot down and say that we said it was the nineties and beyond, mm-hmm. and they said that we had to go for something a little bit more recent, as in something I want I want something from uh, the twenty first century. Okay, um, would like bear with me here. if I said that as an example of a film that could only be made in the twenty first century. Um, uh, a film that is uh, unique and an artistic endeavor and endlessly studyable for many kind of uh, in many filmmaking ways. Inside Out, okay, right. Bear with me here. Uh, a representation of the fact that it's made by Pixar, who is who are sorry, um, probably the most consistent studio of like the last twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Right, bear with me. Um, it's a really, really strange idea for a mainstream film. Um, it's uh, a technological advance from everything we've talked about before, um, and it is indicative of, I guess, the kind of filmmaking we have now, uh, in the sense that it is, uh, it, it kind of can tap into all the stuff outside of the filmmaking, the way the film is marketed, the way the film is. Is um, is kind of is kind of positioned, I guess, uh, if you want to talk about film and culture in a wider sense. Um, do you think something like that could have a place in in our little film studies class? Yeah, I think so. It's certainly in terms of, like you say, an example of how things have changed uh, in recent years, and that now things like studios or even just imprints of a studio become a brand that people have loyalty to mm-hmm. like if a upstart studio came out with inside out 
then I'm not sure it would have had anywhere near the impact because Pixar had 20 years of goodwill built up and people knew what a Pixar film meant, what that phrase mean means and kind of have all of these inbuilt memories of it. That has kind of a huge impact. Similarly, also, if you look at something like more recently Marvel, like mm. the fact that Marvel have built their own little ecosystem where people know what a marvel movie is and even if it's based around a character who uses magic and kind of transports through different dimensions they're willing to give it a go because they know what marvel means Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that's something that uh, existed with disney and and still does with disney and pixar and marvel but pixar seem to be the ones that really elevated the form um in the 90s and through to the 2000s. Mm. Well, bearing in mind that I'm going to be an asshole, what would, what would you suggest for a, a 21st century film that uh, um, is as relevant as the all the other selections we've had? Hmm. Now I've put you on the spot. You have put me on the spot. I do think that it would be Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think because of its use of different cinematic techniques, the fact that it is this kind of surreal nightmare, but also kind of a noir, and the fact that it's a satire, I think it uh, embraces a lot of different ideas about what films can be and embraces the freewheeling nature of 21st century cinema, the fact that people can make that there are so few restrictions uh certainly if you're kind of a david lynch if you're someone who has kind of that reputation you can try things uh and do interesting and strange things and as long as people kind of back you financially you can do stuff that couldn't be done like 20 30 years ago uh and i feel like that's pretty much the ultimate example of that Hmm. i'd say i will concede and uh, allow Mulholland Drive because it is it is incredibly difficult to argue against that. Plus, as well, I think that if our list of films here is lacking anything, it's perhaps something that is uh, formally experimental, possibly. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think the Mulholland Drive fits the bill. Um, despite how much I want to push against it, fair play. It's a great film, um, and you know deserves to be up there. I think that's a good little a good little film studies course, that. Yeah, and I also think that it's nice to culminate with Mulholland Drive. If you look at the films that we've listed before it, it does feel like a culmination of a lot of things that were going on that led up to it. So it's not just kind of, okay, here's a 21st century version of the film noir. It's like, okay, this is film noir, but because it's made in the 21st century, it's a strange and horrifying and kind of inverted version so if you have if you follow the film course kind of chronologically it ending with Mulholland Drive kind of makes sense Mm. yeah yeah. um that's cool uh that was a a fun little thing to do um and I hope that if uh any potential film students out there are listening I don't know why you would be go to bed it's uh it's too late um (laughs) then um that might be we might have offered you some good starting points and perhaps if you're someone who listens to it this show uh, and perhaps isn't particularly well versed in in kind of film history I guess if like you're someone who uh, like me when I was younger I pretty much just watched the films that were out now and you know there's nothing wrong with that but if you want to go back and kind of investigate um, you know film history and and see how we got here um, then I think all those are reasonably good starting points Um, let's do some recommends Ed what have you got well, uh, we said at the start that there wasn't a huge amount of news this week apart from the election. And I think that's partly true. Everything kind of seems a little kind of uh, to pale in comparison. But uh, there was kind of one notable film, certainly, thing, certainly in my world, which was that Leonard Cohen passed away. Mm-hmm. The uh, kind of gravelly voiced pro- poet of doom, uh, the gloomiest Canadian to ever live, Uh you know, passed away. He was in his 80s, so it was not that surprising. And he also, I think, two weeks before he died, gave an interview in which he said, I am ready to die. So maybe not that surprising. 
but mm. he was kind of a great writer you know his, his poetry his novels were great he was a wonderful crafter of these uh miserable but kind of transcendently miserable songs uh and so uh, i'm gonna got two recommend kind of connected recommendations about leonard cohen one yeah, there was a personal essay on the AV Club written by Sean O'Neill, who's their news editor, one of the kind of the funniest writers on that site and someone who's very insightful. He wrote something called Dancing to the End with Leonard Cohen, which, which was his detailing about how he listened to Songs of Love and Hate, his 1971 album, I believe, pretty much every day when he was in the grip of a terrible heroin addiction for many years. And it's a great essay you know personal essays about artists can sometimes be really terrible and cloying but that one is like deeply emotional and and weirdly comforting in the light of his death Uh, and the other thing is a movie about leonard cohen called i'm your man which came out about 10 years ago and is not so much a documentary as a concert movie it's kind of a showcase of all of these artists who were hugely influenced by leonard cohen people like uh, Martha and Rufus Wainwright or Nick Cave or Beth Orton, Teddy Thompson, uh, who performing his songs and talking about what those songs meant to them. And it's a really great gateway into his work for people who maybe have heard of Leonard Cohen or they've heard some of his songs like Hallelujah, which is obviously a um, somewhat overplayed, I would say, a song that has been played to death at this point. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and you know it's it's a really really good concert concert movie as well because the people they get to perform it are amazing you know they're these wonderful musicians who bring these fantastic songs to life uh, and i would really recommend people watch that movie or at the very least just check out the soundtrack you know if you you haven't lived until you've heard nick cave doing his kind of lounge lizard of the damned version of the title song i'm your man uh, which is kind of a, a beautiful thing to behold. Mm. Well, when it comes to uh, recommending stuff, uh, the week that the world has had, uh, I feel like uh, I'm just going to recommend just watch a film that you enjoy that will take you briefly away from the horror that awaits us. Um, just anything, Toy Story, Princess Bride, fuck it, just put it on um, and, uh, you know, get some popcorn out and, yeah, let's just have a break for a second because uh, I feel like, you know, life's about to get worse for everyone. And yeah, not great, but we can use movies to escape it briefly. Uh, it's my birthday this week and I think I'm going to have some, some kind of escapism. I think I'm going to watch the thing. That's what I'm going to watch this week. <laughs> that will help me, uh, you know, kind of forget what's going on for a bit. And I recommend everyone else uh, does likewise. That is your lot, everyone, this week's episode. And for this week's kind of slightly different film school edition of Shot Reverse Shot, thanks as always for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us. Why not on iTunes, Stitcher uh, or Player FM? And if you really enjoyed the show, then why not leave us a little review as well? Um, You can find us on Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. And we're also on Facebook. Uh, We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. (laughs) 